I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode, I'm joined by Henry Coutinho Mason, a trend watcher and reluctant futurist. Henry is the co-author of two books, Trend Driven Innovation and The Future Normal, and has spent his career identifying and analysing trends. Our conversation centres on AI, future skills, and what a new normal might look like for us. Enjoy. Henry, hi, and welcome to Diary of a CLO. How are you doing? Hi, Helen. Great. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Good stuff. Well, I'm going to dig straight into um, all the good stuff. I know we're going to cover a variety of topics as the conversation leads us in various directions today. But first of all, it would be really useful to hear a bit about you and, and yourself. I suppose, what's your elevator pitch? Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, you invited me onto this diary of a CLO, because of course, I'm not a CLO, which is the first thing to say. Uh, so I sit outside of you know, your traditional industry and, and probably for most of your audience. So I'm a trend watcher, I guess, a, a futurist, although as I spoke to you when, when I spoke to your audience at Thrive Live, I kind of resist the label of a futurist, a reluctant futurist. We'll come back to that in a second. But basically, for about 10 years, I ran a business called Trend Watching, which was a small consumer trend boutique uh, looking globally, essentially helping large organizations understand what's coming next, how to spot opportunities and, and you know, the context of your audience, how to get their people to think like futurists. And, and as I said, I keep on using this word and, and although I actually reject it because kind of my big belief, and this really gets to heart of a kind of the elevator pitch really is, is in this world of constant, perpetual, relentless change, you know, all the stuff we hear about on a daily basis, whether it's AI, whether it's you know, Gen Z, whatever, you know, we feel like everything's changing. And, and you know, how the hell do you keep up with this change? And what I try to do is to show people that actually the secret to spotting what's coming next actually lies in the things that are kind of passing through your social media feeds, you know, sitting in your inbox, in your magazines every day. It's looking at the world around you, looking at the world of innovations. You know, these might be new products, new startups, you know, ad campaigns, whatever it is, you know business innovations that are trying to speak to consumers in a different way and looking at those and using those as signals to understand to say what you can do next what opportunities are going to create so i guess you know in, as i said i'm not a clo by any means but actually my, my purpose and what i love about what i do is helping people learn not just the actual things that are around the corner for them that's kind of you know very superficial hopefully knowledge transfer that, that i give someone you know here's an idea that you didn't know before we started speaking or before you started reading my books or my newsletters but actually it's that bigger piece which is how do you become equipped to navigate through this world which is pretty intense <laughs> i don't think we yeah, i'm sure everyone listening is deeply aware as we approach we're recording this at the end of 2023 it's been a hell of a year hasn't it you know keeping up with everything that's going on feels impossible but i do believe it's possible it's really interesting that what you're talking about there is that this almost there's a pace of change and a speed and a fastness about what's going on in the world around us but actually what you're doing is potentially slowing down and observing things that are happening in a world where you're constantly cognitively overloaded by information 
but you're actually being quite purposeful and concise about what it is you're looking at and how you're gathering all that information and all those trends. It's interesting polarity between that speed and slowness of looking at a lot of data points, I guess. Exactly. And there's this amazing quote, which I love, from Jeff Bezos. And he was being interviewed on, on stage at you know, a retail conference. And this journalist was interviewing him and, and you know, she was saying, Jeff, you know, what are you working on? Share kind of your roadmap. What, what does retail in 2030 look like? What's coming down the track that you, you can share with us? And he said, it's really interesting. He said, you know, I'm always asked this question. He said, journalists always want to know, you know, what's going to be different? You know, paint me a picture of drones or AI or whatever it is, Internet of Things, you know, walk out shopping. You know, what, what's the new thing? And he said, you know, I've never asked the kind of other side of this question, which is what's not going to change. And he said, for me and my leadership team at Amazon, that is the far more interesting and far more important question, because he said, the things that you know are not going to change are the things that you can invest your time and your effort and your energy and your money in. And he said, the great thing about them is, is they're really easy to spot. You know, in a world of, as you said, this kind of overwhelm, this, this sense that, you know, the trends are constantly changing. How do I keep up with everything? He said, you know, we know at Amazon that no customer is going to come up to us in 10 years time and say, Jeff, love what you're doing, but just wish you had higher prices and slower delivery times. You know, that is not going to happen. So he said that, to your point, that gives us a lens through which we look at all of the new things, the new technology, as we said, the big data, the internet of things, the drone delivery, the facial recognition, the AI. But he said, if we are very clear and consistent on what we're going to use those technologies for, then that gives us a roadmap, you know, and that's how we can get strategic alignment and that's how we get everyone on board. And, and so really, you know, that is my model. And it was great to hear him explain it in those words because it's very clear. But, you know, we built this business at Trendwatching, which basically said exactly, you know, we are a consumer trend firm. The irony of which is we don't actually speak to consumers at all. We're not like Ipsos or, you know, Euromonitor and all of these people that study them. What we do is we look at business innovations, but through a lens of basic human needs and wants. And so the question that we were always asking, and I've continued since I left that company, I wrote a book called The Future Normal, which is kind of 30 short chapters, each exploring a kind of a what if question about the future of business, the future of society, the future of work. But essentially what, what we do in the book and, and what I've done you know, really for, for most of my career is to look for signals, look for innovators. In the book, we call them instigators. You know, we say, let's meet someone or an organization, it could be a startup, yeah, it could be a you know, government, whatever it is. Let's meet someone who is raising expectations around a basic human need or want. And of course, again, in the context of our conversation, self-improvement, self-development, you know, learning is, a, you know, I would argue, a core fundamental human need or certainly desire. You know, we all want to progress. And so it's looking at the businesses and the, and the organizations, the products, whatever it is, the apps that are changing our expectations around how we learn, maybe how fast we learn, how entertaining our learning experience is, how embedded into our daily lives it is, whatever it is, you know, how personalized our learning is. You know, you can take these ideas, you know, as I said, when we spoke before, another example, just to really contextualize it for your listeners, you know, think back a decade ago when you got into your first Uber, you know, compared to a traditional taxi, 
the experience was such a leap forward in terms of your experience. You pull out your phone, it knows where you are. You don't have to kind of spend five minutes explaining your address, you know, go past the gate, up the hill, just knows where you are. You watch the car arrive, so you know exactly when it's going to arrive. You see the driver's rating. You know, you're sitting in the back, you can share your arrival time with, with the person you're meeting. You, and then you get to your destination, you just walk out. You don't even have to get your wallet out. You know, that was a kind of a transformational experience at the time. I, and that was very obvious. The obvious bit is comparing that to your previous taxi experience. For me, the more interesting question is the customer getting out of Uber and think back 10 years ago. If you walk into H&M or Wagamama's, you know, or another industry, but you still, you're in, let's say Wagamama's, let's use the example, you're sitting in the restaurant, you're looking at a menu, you don't know which dish is rated best by the customers. You know, you don't know whether your waiter is any good. You don't know how long it is until your food arrives. When you come to pay the bill, you know, it's an awkward moment of splitting the bill. Now, consciously or subconsciously, I believe, and we've seen this time after time, the expectation around the kind of seamlessness and transparency of your Uber experience will create a point of tension when you have a, that's a similar, a potentially similar experience in other industries. And so that's why, you know, so we look at innovation through the lens of these basic human needs and wants. But I think the real secret sauce is to look outside of your industry. And, and you know, that's why I think it's, you know, it's fantastic you know, what you do at Thrive. And, and, you know, again, chief learning officers are, are doing this kind of organically, right, you know, as part of the role is to look outside of your narrow industry and say, you know, Yes, we might be a retailer or we might be a transportation provider or whatever industry you're in. But what can our people learn from other industries? Because that's where the opportunities will, you know, will, will exist. You know, if you're a fast, fast casual dining restaurant, you know, now, of course, you're going to Wagamama. Some of those those points of tension are now resolved. You know, you have a digital menu, especially if you ordered, you know, you look at delivery, right? It looks like Uber. You can see it arrive. And some of that is in restaurants now as well. Payment, again, you can pay by QR code and split the bill much more easily, et cetera, et cetera. So over the last decade, we've seen that expectation gap close. And, and that's it, really. You know, that for me is, is the secret to identifying these potentially, you know, very robust innovation opportunities is to ask yourself, these are the basic human needs which are important to my customers, self-improvement, transparency, information, convenience, whatever it is. Let's look at the wider world of, of business of, of life and see, you know, which innovators are setting a new standard for those basic human needs. And let's think about how we can resolve them. What's really interesting what you're saying there is the expectation you have on a personal level about stuff that's going on in the world in which you live and what those expectations are when you enter a workplace and how a workplace can adapt to external expectations and the way you live and carry out your lives and bring some of that into what they do within the workplace. And I think there's still a tension there between potentially maybe older ways of doing things that haven't necessarily caught up to speed with those expectations of particularly younger people coming into the workforce. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. And I think the last you know, five, six years or so, I've done so much more work with B2B clients and companies precisely for that reason. You know, we can all kind of joke about, you know, the SAP timesheets that look like kind of something out of MS-DOS, you know, and you're kind of logging in and it just feels a world away from your Uber experience or, you know, your Tinder experience, whatever, you know, it's kind of like one swipe, you know, it's just like that kind of consumer facing customer experience, especially in the digital world, you know, Netflix, it's personalized. And the idea of kind of logging into an old school LMS, you know, and it's like a very one size fits all and it's 30 minutes of boring text. 
how does that sit with the TikTok generation, you know, where everything is algorithmically curated, bite size, you know, very interactive, or, or you know, the example I used in, in my presentation at Thrive Live was something like Roblox, you know, you, you have a younger generation, I mean, they're not even in, or many of the, the Roblox users not even in the workforce yet, but, you know, for, for those listeners who aren't aware, you know, Roblox is the um, the kind of 3D world game. It's a kind of proto-metaverse, if you like. This multi-small games within a gaming universe is the best way to describe it. And, and so players or creators can create little micro games, so little car racing games, robot games, you know, little shoot-em-up games, whatever it is, for other players to play. The whole world that this younger generation exists in, this world of video games, is, is entirely interactive. They expect to be able to create their own world and, and make it available to other people. And, and you know, you've got these micro entrepreneurs and, and of course not everyone is, is creating these worlds. It's much more of a peer-to-peer style universe, which of course is, you know, social media again is you exist in a world of new authorities, you know, influencers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we talk about trust as a basic human need, you know, who, who we trust, how we gain trust, all of these things are, are in flux and, and certainly being changed by people's experiences, people's digital experience. And as you say, the idea that someone can just walk, you know, I was talking industry to industry before, it's also context to context. The idea that someone will, you know, on their mobile, have all this rich, interactive, et cetera, you know, very dynamic experience, walk into their office and suddenly, you know, be comfortable going back to this, you know, very traditional experience just doesn't hold water. It's interesting as well that there's almost a falling back into old habits and there's a certain generation of people in the workforce currently who are in that moment of flux between a different way of doing something and old ways of doing something. And there's almost that expectation that oh we've just got to bend to this way of delivery or whatever the experience is whereas like we said those younger generations are just not going to be as I guess maybe as flexible in their approach to being as accommodating and they're maybe potentially going to be a bit more challenging and vocal about things than maybe we are as a generation. Yeah and and I think that is true but I still think that the real opportunity, you know, that's still quite a kind of almost a negative view of learning as something that is kind of imposed on people, you know, and they have to react and they shout about it. And going back to this kind of basic human needs, you know, I'm actually much more optimistic than that. And I think because I think that actually people want to learn, you know, it, it, the sense of achievement, you know, that sense of progression. People love learning, you know, I, I mean. It's funny, you know, my, my son, I've got a five-year-old son and he's kind of, you know, absolutely obsessed with Lego. And I said, we're recording this in early December and he's in the middle of his advent calendar. And, you know, he, he kind of sneakily stole the instructions out of the back of it. He's got one of his Lego advent calendars. And he was sitting in the bath the other day and he, and he suddenly reeled off to me what he's getting for the next 10 days and every day of the thing. And I looked at him and I said, what, how, how do you know this? He said, well, I've learned it from the instruction. And because it's something he's interested in, I use that as an example of we're kind of, so often, you know, we, we have this perception of learning as something that's kind of almost done to us, you know, that, you know, you're doing your whatever it is, workplace learning, you know, oh God, I've got to complete this course to kind of, you know, tick a box. And, and as I said, I think that's a very reductive view of learning. And actually, I think the exciting thing is the companies that actually make learning fun and interesting, it is an epic opportunity for them because I think, you know, they, they will get better performance from their staff, of course, but actually, they'll see greater engagement, you know, not just performance, but their staff will be more engaged because there's nothing more demoralizing than, you know, 
having a job where you turn up and you're not progressing and you know you're not learning or learning is, is dull and dry and i think the opportunity for those organizations if you like kind of crack the code of you know aligning that their employee educational experience with you know their, their employee expectations of what learning could be that is going to be so exciting and that is going to be an amazing you know they, they will see a rush to you know for applicants you know you think of some of the where there are skills shortages you know there's a huge skill shortage in in sustainability and green skills and climate you know that is one of the biggest growth areas in terms of you know employment opportunities of course, you know, we're learning the science is moving so fast, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what you studied at school or university, you know, 10, well, you know, however long ago, right, is, is probably not relevant. Helping align, you know, a learning experience with a purpose, you know, with progression. I, I, you know, I think there are such exciting opportunities for those organizations that can do this well. Uh, and, and commercial opportunities as well. Yeah, and it's about reframing what learning is for people too. So it's, it's interesting that you've mentioned kind of education systems there and how you're physically taught things in in those settings. When you come into a workplace, actually, it's it's much more experiential. Learning on the job is you're learning every day. It's not just like you say something that's done to you. And it's about shifting that level of expectation as well to say this is actually you're actually learning right now and that's not something that's maybe been spoken about a lot previously yeah and i think that's you know that is where technology will be able to help i think because again being able to capture some of that learning and codify it because it's you know it's traditionally often been quite informal and of course you know that and look this is not every, every of course every job is not is not digital but you know as more jobs become more digital of course you know you you get data and you and you, you, you do get that recording. And, and again, I think that's the exciting opportunity for AI is how that will help with that personalization and that richness and that reflection, you, you know, that again, people maybe don't often have time to do or necessarily don't have the skills. You know, as you say, a lot of learning is done very organically, very informally. But a lot of teachers in that context, you know, the people who are transmitting that information down, you know, they're not educators. But, you know, now, you know, you will be able to have AI that will kind of, if you like, sit alongside them, you know, kind of beneath them, however you want to position it. And, and you almost like help the recipient of that information understand and reinforce and capture what they're learning. And I, I do think I spoke about this in, in the presentation that I gave again at Thrive Live. We are seeing the emergence of people having these kind of these virtual companions that are kind of digital avatars. And we're seeing the same in healthcare. You know, it, I'm, I'm not suggesting that suddenly we outsource all of our learning to digital avatars. But one of the really interesting analogies is in, in healthcare is there's evidence emerging that actually patients can actually prefer medical notes that are written by ai now that's not to say the whole process is automated again this is not you know this, this is not a good use of ai it's i think about 100 percent automation I, I believe it's about how can you augment the human experience with ai and in the context of the medical notes people actually prefer medical notes that are written by an ai because they're written in layman's terms you know they have the, an ai doesn't have time pressure it's not it's not distracted it's not racing to the next patient so it can explain things more fully and then you can ask it questions and you can explore something you don't understand you know but maybe you feel embarrassed about asking a doctor so i think you know that combination of as you said that kind of informal experiential on the job learning paired potentially with a, with a digital companion that allows people 
to ask the stupid and inverted commas questions that maybe they don't want to ask their manager, you know, to drill down. Okay, that was really interesting. You know, how can I learn more about that? It's that human plus machine that I think will be really interesting in, in again, changing the learning experience to be more personalized, you know, and as we said that at the start, you know, it's, it's thinking about these basic human needs and wants. Of course, like we'd always love every educational experience to be 100% personalized. You know, we know that the, the dream of education would be to have a personal tutor for every person 24-7, but it's just not possible. Whereas now we can at least get, you know, it might not be a person, but at least we get some of the way there to have this kind of a sounding board, co-pilot, you know, companion, however you want, whatever terminology you want to, to use. But I do think, yeah, as I said, the future of education is, is really exciting in that context because it's just going to be exponentially more engaging and more accessible for people. And as I said, you know, we're already seeing early signals of this, not just in the educational sector, but in the healthcare sector, in other parts of the workplace. We're seeing a huge kind of focus on AI at the moment, obviously, particularly over the past year, maybe the past 18 months, but I would particularly say the past year. And a lot of what we're seeing are, as you described, as kind of coaches, digital coaches or uh, creating a more personalised experience based on information that an organisation might have. Why do you think there's been such a, a huge and sharp uptake in interest in AI? And this kind of comes back to what we were speaking about earlier about stuff that's always there that's always present that you're going to always have to be focused on how do you enhance that potentially with ai what's happened i guess what shifted everyone's expectations exactly and i think you alluded to it there clearly you know ai is not a new technology you know depending on when you date it it's anything from 50 years old to kind of you know 10 years old right whether you're talking about ai in general or neural networks or you know llms being even more recent obviously the, the, the kind of two things that have happened really simultaneously in the last year was number one kind of exponential increase in its capabilities the power of ai you know and even think back i mean it's, it's just gone a year since chat gpt was released but chat gpt4 was of such a leap forward and then that's really the second piece which i think is probably almost the more interesting piece in terms of the, what we're talking about the democratization of ai is the accessibility of it you know had ai still been behind an API curtain, for want of a better word, you know, a very technical product. Yes, it would still be having a huge impact on the business landscape, but almost that was kind of where it was five years ago. It was something someone else did. You know, there was an AI person in your organization or team, right, depending on the nature of your organization. And you were aware of it if you were a leader, you know, and you were thinking, okay, fine, it's, it's something that's happening, but it's kind of that department's job. And of course, what ChatGPT did was just fundamentally blow the doors open you know as we all know the stats you know 100 million users in a few weeks just make it truly accessible and i think it was that moment where people were like i can just talk to this thing you know and again even in the last year we've gone from text you know which is which is of course a very accessible medium but it's not actually it's still quite time consuming you know it's not bad you're not going to sit there chatting all day you know we're seeing this move to voice and, and i don't know if you've ever experimented with any of the voice ones either on chat gpt or platforms like pi which are which are a bit more personalized or a bit more personal it is becoming a more and more mainstream behavior to just talk to an ai and i think that is really interesting you know it is it is truly a democratic technology it's again, I think, very challenging for some organizations and some leaders who still have a very a mindset that the best innovation, in inverted commas, 
is kind of decided at the top and pushed down, you know, and it is a fundamental flipping of that narrative. And, and I read a great a quote the other day, it was something on the lines of, you know, but if you're thinking about, you know, AI replacing your job, really the, the only person who knows how much of your job AI can replace is you because everyone's job is different, you know, assuming you're not literally kind of on a, a manual assembly line. You know, any white collar job is, is so kind of multifaceted and so context dependent that you just have to get in there and try things and see what it's good at and see what it isn't good at. If we're still learning. I mean, we're, you know, it really is so, so early. But some of the interesting first studies, there was a fascinating study by Boston Consulting Group and Harvard University. And they gave a lot of these consultants, you know, strategy consultants at BCG, they gave them just GPT-4. It was, you know, it wasn't a special AI. It was just the off-the-shelf, the one that everyone can use for, for $20 a month. And they analyzed, you know, the impact on these consultants' performance. The two really interesting takeaways from this study was the, the kind of obvious ones were, yes, people did more tasks, they did them faster, they kind of did them a bit better, basically, is the headline. But the two really interesting kind of notes to this were the weaker consultants, the consultants who without AI were in the bottom half of performance, they saw a much bigger performance gain than the top performing consultants, which I think is fascinating from an employer point of view, you know, it essentially is the great leveler. You know, if you're not, and we see this kind of intuitively think about an international organization, one of the, you know, one of the stories that I hear all the time, if English is not your first language, it's been transformative in your email writing, you're just writing documents, you know, you can now, so the things that, and that's a kind of extreme example of the things that you are weaker at, it allows you to get much better at quickly. But that's true in other skills. You know, if you're not very good at data analysis, doing data analysis with an AI makes you much better at it. If you're already pretty good at it, you see a much smaller performance increase. The other, and this is really fascinating, the other really fascinating implication was we're still learning what AI can and can't do. And the analogy they use is they called it the jagged frontier. And what they mean by that is there are some areas where AI dramatically outperforms people and there are some areas where it, where it dramatically underperforms them. and it's not always clear where that is it is a jagged frontier so you're standing on the edge of this cliff and you're not really sure you know where, where the edge is and so when they set these consultants a task that ai wasn't good at what was the outcome and they what they found is the consultants who used ai actually got lazy basically they made more mistakes they didn't pick up the mistake that ai was essentially giving them the wrong answer whereas the control group the group that weren't using ai most of them spotted the mistake and worked through it you know under their own steam and so the takeaway is you know it's not all you know if it's utopian ai is going to do everything because there's going to be a really interesting and you know maybe we'll figure out ways to resolve this the huge skill is not just going to be can you use ai but it's it's do you know when to use it and, and so again from a, from a learning and development point of view that's going to be a huge you know there's going to be a, a dual if you like focus on on training in and around ai with ai is both how do you train your people to use ai effectively because you will get more out of them if you do that but also can you train them on when to use it when it's appropriate and, and again we will undoubtedly have if we all saw the story of that lawyer who went in court with the fabricated uh, cases there will be these horror stories where people rely on ai hopefully for most organizations not as extreme as that global media professional suicide but absolutely you know we will have to reorientate our organizations to 
put in safeguards to fact check, right, and validate whether our team's use of AI is appropriate and whether we're getting the right answer. And again, you know, the organizations that do that well will see, you know, outsized performance. The organizations that don't do that well will run into some really, you know, horrible, risky, embarrassing situations. There's a couple of things that I think are really important in what you said there. So one to do with recognizing weaknesses and strengthening your weaknesses and the other to do with your own kind of critical thinking skills or more human skills, as I would call them. First of all, that hone in on the weaknesses. It's interesting. I've heard quite a few coaches recently speaking about how individuals should be focusing and honing in on their strengths and leaning into what they're really good at to avoid kind of spending time on your weaknesses in order to get them to the same level. It's really interesting that AI might be able to kind of plug that gap and you as an individual can focus on your strengths or strengthen your strengths even with AI, but also have the opportunity to focus on those areas for improvement as well. I've heard that a lot from coaches as well, isn't it? And it goes back to this point that I was saying earlier about learning is or can be a really enjoyable activity, right? a really motivating activity too often. Exactly. You know, we, the school system, et cetera, you know, you're so you're so kind of alerted to your weaknesses, you know, you have to do exams and this thing or whatever. We focus on that and that, that sucks the joy out of it. Probably, probably you, you don't like learning things that you're not interested in. And again, using this analogy of the children, I was talking to you know, another mum whose child's at school with mine, you know, her son's obsessed with football, you know, and she was saying everything has to be about football. And, and again, AI is amazing for that. You know, they can, they can personalize all the kind of homework to make it about football. You know, math suddenly becomes about the transfer fees, you know, that you can add up or whatever. And suddenly, you know, for a six-year-old boy, they're interested in it. And that's an extreme example, of course, because you're a child, you know. But I think the same, you know, we're talking about human nature, but that actually doesn't leave us even as adults. You know, you are infinitely more interested in the things that you're interested in. And as you say, being able to focus on that will allow people you know i hope the optimistic view is it will allow people to as you say to focus on their strengths you know really focus on where they, where they can be the most human where they enjoy and as you say use ai to, to fill in in vertical some of our weaknesses and and that's you know, that's the optimistic view anyway i love that and i love to have that kind of optimistic view of it too and then when it comes to the more human side of skills it's something that i'm hearing a lot of people talk quite in depth about is this need and shift towards reinforcing those basic human skills and I talk about critical thinking quite a lot because when it comes to AI as you've just said you need to be able to think critically about the outputs that you're being given. The other side of the coin here is I'd love to hear your thoughts on on human skills and, and that focus anyway but also is there almost kind of an innate focus on the human and human skills because of that threat to what's going on in our lives and is that why we're focusing on them and I'd love to hear your thoughts on both sides of that. Yeah I think it's a fascinating question. One of the things we are learning is is a kind of partial answer to your question. One of the things we're discovering is that AI is actually quite good at things that we thought only humans were good at, especially generative AI I'm really talking about here. So creativity yeah, actually, in one of his stories, empathy, you know, we spoke about these healthcare notes, you know, the, the kind of traditional expectation, right, was that robots would do the calculations, and I'm kind of simplifying, but it would do, you know, Excel and the actual, you know, data analysis, etc. And then the physical world, even robotics, right, will do all the kind of manual labor, people will be the poets and the songwriters, etc. As many of us went to ChatGPT, probably the, one of the first things we did was like, write me a lyric or write me a song, you know, that was kind of the, one of the early wow moments. And I said, with doctors, you know, we're finding out that often patients can actually prefer AI-generated notes. I don't think the picture is as binary, maybe, as we thought a few years ago. You know, and of course, actually, you know, in, in most markets in the world, 
you know, manual labor is actually seeing, you know, the current expectations less directed in terms of wage suppression by uh, in kind of the higher order, white collar, softer skills. Having said that, so I think some of these skills that we assume are innately human, I think AI is really challenging that. Having said that, I mentioned this earlier, I don't view the, the, the logical follow on from that as humans will be redundant, you know, because I think, yes, AI can be really creative. It can be really empathetic. Does that mean that humans have no place in that world? No, that, and that's the mistake I think most people make is to go, well, great, you know, AI can write songs, therefore we're only going to listen to robots, rock stars, right? The fact is, is we like to know that there's a human on the other end. And again, there's lots of evidence. There's lots of people prefer AI generated whatever it's messages. There was a, there was a non-profit actually, and they did this. They, you know, it's a kind of, um, crisis support line, I forget the name, and they used ChatGPT to support their human, not therapists, but, you know, counsellors. And the data showed people preferred the AI-generated messages, crucially, until they were told that it was generated by an AI. And then, you know, and as the CEO said, he had a great line, he said, you know, something like simulated empathy feels hollow. You know, before you knew it was simulated, before you knew it was generated. And so this is where I'm, I'm really bullish on augmentation, co-pilots, assistance, whatever, you know, the, the word is. Because I think, you know, again, going back to the kind of a corporate world, the business world, you know, yes, your accountant uses a spreadsheet, you know, whatever it is, right? They, you know, they're not manually doing many of the calculations anymore, but you still want someone to talk it through. And, you know, humans provide a different role of that. Sometimes it's maybe just a social role. Sometimes it's taking responsibility for it, you know, who signs off again, or in, in some of the other contexts, you know, with a doctor, right? You know, it's, it's, it's just having a human on the other end of it. You know, again, there is a place for automation. There is a place for generated content answers, whatever it is. But as I said, I, I don't think the logical conclusion is that humans uh, remain redundant. So it's, it's such a cliche, but you know, you won't lose your job to AI, you'll lose your job to someone using AI, if you don't, because that person using AI can be more efficient, can be more effective, but also maybe can be more creative, can be more empathetic, right? All of these things that we feel are innately human. And I think we will just get to a stage well, we always stop asking this question. You know, I, I forget speaking to a moment ran a digital agency, you know, 15 years ago. Well, it's, it's kind of, you know, it, that only works at the beginning of the trend because eventually every agency is a digital agency. You know, the word becomes meaningless because it just is invisible. You know, it's like we don't talk about, ironically, we talk about an electric car because it's novel, right? But we don't talk about an electric house or an electric office, right? It's just assumed. I mean, electricity is ubiquitous. There's probably a wider parallel in the world of trends. You stop writing about something when it stops being interesting because it's just, you know, it's just assumed. It's just the normal. Again, this kind of parallel after parallel, you know, once you think about it, plant-based X, you know, if, if we stop eating meat, eventually everything will be plant-based. And, you know, again, I'm not saying that we, we will, but it's kind of the trend. Maybe eventually something becomes labeled as meat because that is the, the not normal, right? That is the kind of the special in inverted commas. But there is a phase when new things burst onto a scene and they are labeled as such. This is generated, whatever. This is AI powered X. And eventually we will just stop referring to it as such because there basically won't be anything that isn't AI powered. That's my view. I, I, don't, I think the lines feel very distinct at the moment. And we, you know, your, your question, we worry about human skills and automated skills, and it won't be as clear as that. But I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I, I don't think, as I say, that that means we have some some future where like humans are set against the machines. You know, that's the sci-fi trope. 
the reality is we just integrate technology. I love that perspective. Thank you. And I suppose to wrap it up and to lean into, again, that idea of human connection and, and human skills, I'd love to hear a bit of advice that you've been given by someone that you know that you've passed on consistently as a result of it being such brilliant advice. Oh, that's such a great question. Probably one of the things I often think about is, and I've heard variants of it, when I first started speaking, and I, and I was not a natural public speaker, I never did any kind of theatre or drama at school. And I remember the um, my boss at the time, he said, to be honest, just remember no one cared. <laughs> and I mean that in a kind of a nice way. He said, no one really cares what you say. Now, he was paraphrasing Maya Angelou. No one really cares what you say. No one really cares, especially how, how you say it even. They just care how you make them feel. And you know, it ties back to that thought about human skills. We will be in a world of, say, abundance when it comes to data, when it comes to even insight. But you know, going back to this idea of simulated empathy being quite hollow, I think you know, just re- A, remembering what kind of the actual thing that you're doing is, is you know, of course, it feels important on the day. But actually, it's that general feeling inside that do you leave people feeling good? Do you leave people feel confident? Do you leave people feeling excited? Do you leave them feeling inspired? And I think, you know, that meant, do you you make someone's day a little bit better? I think that's, you know, trying to remember that is quite humbling, but also very human. As you say, very human. What else do we have? What a brilliant way to wrap up the conversation. Thank you so much, Henry. So much insight shared. And I'm sure other listeners will take away lots of different things from the episode. So I appreciate you sharing so openly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Helen. It's been lovely to speak to you. You <laughs> have some thought-provoking questions. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.